Thanks for joining us for this message from Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Shades Valley and its ministries, you can visit us at shadesvalley.org. Five and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you are newer to Shades, you may be wondering what Amy is doing on the stage behind me. Why do we have someone painting or drawing during service? We don't do this every Sunday, but the Lord has blessed us as a community and given us a number of artists. And on occasion, we'll ask one of those artists to take the passage for that Sunday and the themes that we're going to be exploring and to express them through art. And we've done this, we've kind of made a point of always doing it during the four weeks of Advent, because then we end up with these four pieces of art that help us to reflect on specific journeys we've been on together through the scriptures. So it's just another way of exploring the truth of God's word through one of the means that he's given us. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into the word together. Father, we are so grateful. Grateful for this season that your church throughout history saw wisdom in setting aside time to make sure that every year we recall and remember the gift you have given us in your son, the miracle that is, and what it means for the world. I pray, I pray that this Advent, you would show us new implications of this truth and that it would shape us as a community, change us as a community to reflect more of your gospel and its good news to the world. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, whom you sent. Amen. Today is the first Sunday of the season of Advent. Advent is a season of longing, of yearning. It's it's different from the way that like secular culture talks about the Christmas season. what, What people mean when they talk about the Christmas season is take all the joy and the craziness and the hype or whatever of Christmas Day and let's just spread that out backwards all over December. That's not what Advent is. Advent is a season of longing, groaning. It's a season in which we sit in the dark that progressively grows brighter as we light these Advent candles around the wreath. There are four candles on the outside of the wreath, and that's because there are four weeks in the season of Advent, and there are four weeks because they're meant to make us remember 400 years. 400 years between the final prophet of the Old Testament and the birth of Christ. 400 years that the people of God waited 
for that prophet's promises of a Messiah to come. They, they, they waited, they groaned, they longed for that to be fulfilled. And so we take this season every year to look back on their longing because in it we hear an echo of our own. We are a people who are longing, are we not? For the same thing, for the advent of Christ, his second advent. We are people who are longing, we feel an ache, a groan for this Savior who has promised to come and make all things new. We feel that in, in the sin that surrounds us in our world, in the brokenness and the darkness, that, in, in the sin and brokenness that infects our own bodies. I mean, every morning I get up, as I age a little bit more each year, I groan a little bit more each year for the redemption of all things. We are a people waiting for the second advent of Christ, for him to come again and bring to completion the redemption his first advent began. And so I don't know where you are this morning. You may feel like, I don't feel like celebrating Christmas at all this year. Advent invites you in to long, to groan, and to hope. And it's funny if we do that, this season has a way of preparing us, preparing us for Christmas Day when we have a joyous ache. That our God who promised way back when to send a Savior, he did. And so we have hope and joy that he who has promised he will come again. He will. I invite you to enter that season of longing with me. We're going to do it through a series simply entitled Embodied Wonder. Embodied Wonder. So I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 1 if you haven't done so already. Gospel of John chapter 1. This past week, uh, my eldest son Levi and I, we were riding in the car, and just to make conversation, I asked him, so what are you going to get me for Christmas? Which he did what you're doing. He laughed at me, and he said, my love. <laughs> to which I replied, good, that's the same thing I've got you. <laughs> it's like I'm going to give you a box on Christmas Day, and you're going to wrap, and there's going to be nothing in it but a paper that says, my love. He did not find this amusing. But why? Is it, uh, is it because he's a selfish, materialistic teenager who really just wants stuff? My love isn't good enough? No, I don't, I don't think that's why. I, because I know him, and I know his heart, and I know me. I know my own heart, and I know that I, I would be disappointed with a bunch of empty boxes on Christmas morning. Why? It's because the gifts we give are meant to be an embodied expression of our love. I don't mean that like you can prove your love to somebody by how much you spend on them. Not, I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about when, a, when a, a real gift given from the heart is received to another heart, the, the gift becomes an embodied expression of our love. This is, this is why when guys propose, they typically give a ring. If you don't and you're like, my love and words should be good enough, you'll find that ring's rather empty. But the giving of the ring is a giving of, of joy from my heart. It's, it's an embodied expression of love. Gifts are, are meant to make the intangible tangible, the invisible 
visible. They, they, they put flesh on our words. Funny. God did the same thing through Advent. John chapter 1 and verse 14. The word became flesh, and we beheld his glory. Tangible, visible, incarnate glory. God's word, Jesus Christ, embodied. And his embodiment matters. Like more than you know. It, it matters like an actual Christmas present matters to Levi and matters to us all. An empty box seems like an empty expression of love, but a gift embodies my love. In a, in a much greater way, God has not merely expressed his love for you in words. No, that word took on flesh. His love literally embodied. Jesus, God embodied, and his embodiment matters. This morning, I want us to see why. Why does the embodied word matter? What does it matter for us? I'm going to warn you, buckle up. Today, we're going to be heavy on the theology. We're going to get into all the implications of this through the rest of the series. But this morning, we've got to see why does the word embodied matter? Why does it matter to us? I believe John chapter 1 helps us to see why. Begin reading with me. John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This is such a strange way to begin a gospel. John's weird. We spent two and a half years going through this gospel here because he is my favorite gospel writer, and I love all things that are weird in Scripture. Matthew, the God, you look at the other three Gospels. Matthew begins with Jesus' genealogy. All right, that makes sense. Family tree stuff. Mark begins with Jesus' ministry. That's a natural entry point. Luke begins with Jesus' birth. Okay, I'm tracking with all that. John begins with Genesis. In the beginning. And if that's not weird enough... He calls his main character the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Who's that? And gives us a little bit more detail. The Word was with God. All right, so if I'm reading this for the first time, I'm thinking, okay, we're in the beginning, in Genesis, this character, the Word, is with God. Maybe it's like an angel or something, but then we read the next line. The Word was God. And at that point, I'm like, okay, I give up. This is such a strange way to begin a gospel until you see what John means. And then this actually becomes the clearest beginning to any gospel. The key is the term word. Why does John use that title for his main character? The Greek word behind word is logos. Uh, that word has quite a history in Greek philosophy, and because of that, people will try and read through the lens of Greek philosophy what John's saying about this character right here. But here's the deal. John, our author, he was not steeped in Plato or Socrates. What he was steeped in was the Old Testament. 
And you do not have to flip very far through your Old Testament before God's word starts coming up all over the place. In the Old Testament, the word of God is the means by which God reveals himself. It's it's how God makes himself known. The word is all about revelation, revealing who God is. Our God is a speaking God. He makes himself known through words. He did it in creation, speaking all of creation into existence. He did it not only in creation, he he has made himself known this way in salvation, revealing himself to us that we might know him. He revealed himself by speaking to Abraham, to Moses, to the prophets, and on and on and on. The word is all about revelation through creation and salvation. The word is all about revealing who God is through creation and salvation. And it's funny, that's precisely what John shows us right here at the beginning of his gospel. But he does it in a way that fills us with wonder because John right here at the beginning of his gospel, he's not just talking about God's words, he's talking about the word. John is telling us about a person who perfectly reveals God. You see what he's doing? The word reveals God. Here's a person that does that perfectly, so I'm going to give him that title, the word. John's telling us about a person who perfectly reveals God, and John tells us he's able to do that because this person is God, distinct from God, and yet is God. How can that be? It can be because we see throughout the entirety of Scripture that God reveals himself to be Trinity, one God, one being, in other words, who eternally exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We call that the Godhead, three in one. We sing about this, right? The Godhead, three in one, Father, Spirit. This is not a contradiction, by the way. For something to be a contradiction means that you're saying that something is um, two different ways. In the, well, actually, it's to say that something is two different things in the exact same way at the exact same time. There, that's what I was looking to say. In other words, if I said I'm six feet tall and I'm five feet tall, that's a contradiction. We are not saying that God is one person and three persons. We're not saying that God is one God and three gods. We are saying that he is three persons in one God. Three hypostases in one usia for all of my Greek scholars out there. It will make your mind melt, but its beauty is breathtaking. Because this means that at the center of all reality is ultimate love. The Father who has perfectly loved the Son from all eternity. The Son who has perfectly loved the Father in and through the Holy Spirit. This is why we say along with our author John, God is love. The Trinity is mind melting but beautifully breathtaking. And do you see that this is precisely the beautiful breathtaking reality that John is describing? In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, distinct from God the Father. And yet the word was God, one being. John calls this distinct second person of the Trinity the word. Because he's the one who reveals 
God. He reveals the Godhead to us. He shows us who God is and what God is like. And he does it through creation and salvation. First, the word reveals God through creation. Look at verse 3. All things were made through him. The word. All things were made through him. Creation happened through the word. God revealing himself in creation. It all happened through the second person of the Trinity. Just in case we didn't get the point positively, John makes the same statement, but negatively. And without him, without the word, was not anything made that was made. The word reveals God through creation. Second, the word reveals God through salvation. The word reveals God through salvation. Look at verses 4 and 5. In him, the word, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John's playing with creation themes and showing us how they apply to salvation. The word was the source of life and light in creation. In him was life. Life was the light of men. He literally breathed into us the breath of life, and he lit the way to true life. Our first parents turned from the light of Christ that leads to life and plunged the world into darkness and death. So we need this word to do the same thing in salvation that he did in creation. We need him to be light and life. We need the word to break into our dark world Dispel that darkness with his light. We need him to break into our world of death and dispel death with life. And this is exactly what John says he has done. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. This word who spoke light into being in creation, who gave life in creation, he's done the same thing in the work of salvation. He has entered into this dark world as the light of the world to give us light, and death itself could not overcome him. Read the end of the gospel. Jesus rises from the dead. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The question that John has to answer is how. How did the word do this? How did it shine in the darkness, enter into our darkness in order to defeat darkness and death. In order to see John's answer, you've got to skip down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The incarnation. Are you familiar with that theological term? All my Latin buffs, you can hear the Latin carne in there, which means meat, flesh, to incarnate something means to put flesh on it. John's saying the word, the second person of the triune God, became flesh. God incarnate. We call him Jesus. Jesus is the word. Take everything that we've been saying so far and bring it to bear on the identity of who Jesus is. Jesus is the word. He is the revelation of God. He, he is the person who perfectly reveals God because he is God. He's the one who revealed God in creation because all things were made through him. So says Romans. So says Colossians. 
And without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the one who has revealed God in creation. Jesus is the one who has revealed God in salvation. He is the light of the world. Come into this world of darkness and death as the light that brings life. And he did it by taking on flesh, a body. Jesus is the embodied word. Do you see the wonder of it? The creator of the cosmos entering into creation. Do you see the wonder? John did. He says so. Look at verse 14 again. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we, John's saying me, the other disciples, we, we've seen, we've seen his glory, the, the wonder, we've seen his glory, glories of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. It's hard to see precisely what John is saying right here in English, but he is using language from the book of Exodus to try and blow our minds with the wonder of Jesus taking on flesh. The word dwelt, you see that right there? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literal translation is tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. You remember the tabernacle from the book of Exodus? It was kind of like the first temple that God's people had. It was a portable tent. For the glory of God dwelt while the Israelites wandered around and moved through the wilderness. John is saying, Jesus was like that tabernacle. God's glory moving about in our midst just in flesh instead of a tent. John's saying the same God who worked salvation back in the Exodus, that God who would blow your mind, he's the one working salvation now. Jesus is God embodied. And just in case we don't get it, John confirms it at the end of the verse with the words, full of grace and truth. Again, that is an Exodus phrase. It's an Exodus phrase that God used to describe himself back in Exodus 34 and verse 6. God of steadfast love and faithfulness. Bring that through Greek and into English, and this is what you get. Full of grace and truth. John John is leveraging language in, in every which way he can to, to make us fall down in wonder at God embodied. God the creator entering creation. God the savior who works salvation in the exodus, tabernacling amongst his people, tabernacled in flesh. This is God incarnate and lying in a manger. C.S. Lewis, ever the brilliant C.S. Lewis, he said it like this. He said, on the first Christmas, a stable had something inside it bigger than our whole world. He, Lewis is... He, he puts it that way because he's trying to make us see the wonder. That's what John's doing. Shades, do you, do you wonder at the embodied word? And not just because of who he is. That's what we've been talking about, right? Creator, Savior, embodied. Do you wonder at him not just because of who he is, but because of why he has come to save his creation. Savior, creator, came to save his creation. This is why the embodied word matters. And specifically, this is why he matters to us. Because the creator and savior came to save his creation. And guess who that includes? 
you, me. It includes all of us, our, our whole selves, body, and all. Stay with me. This is, this is the point that I've been worried where I'm going to lose everybody. I want you to hang with me as we see this connection between Christ's embodiment and ours. Shades, this is the specific implication of the incarnation that I've been building us towards seeing this morning. It's an implication that's all too often neglected that we desperately need to recover. What is the implication? The embodied word came to save his embodied world. I'm going to unpack it. The embodied word came to save his embodied world. In other words, Jesus didn't come just to save your soul. He came to save your body too. Why else would he need a body? St. Gregory, all the way back in the 300s, he put it this way. If half of Adam fell, meaning it's just a spiritual thing, then half of Adam will be taken up and saved. But if all of Adam fell, then all his nature will be united to God and all of it will be saved. That which is not taken up is not healed. He's saying Christ had to have a body to save ours. He's saying sin and death affects every part of us, and Christ didn't come just to solve half of that problem, but all of it. Christ had no sin, so he could bear ours. And he had a body, so he could take our death and save us, all of us, body and so this is the implication of the incarnation we desperately need to see. The embodied word came to save his embodied world. Jesus took on a body to save yours. He was embodied because your embodiment matters. Stay with me. This is massive, and I promise that for us as Christians, if we will re-embrace this truth, it will clear up so much confusion that we have in our current moment in history. I want you to see the revelation of this truth with me. See it through creation, through salvation, and through the incarnation. First, embodiment matters in creation. Embodiment matters in creation. This is not hard to see. God created us with a body because that's how we were designed to be. Embodied creatures. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. Embodied, he created them. He created us in body and our bodies are tied to our purpose. Do you see that right here? Our purpose was to image God, reflect his glory to the world, and the fact that we were made embodied is tied to that purpose. The purpose of making an image of a God in the ancient world was to make the intangible tangible. 
to make the invisible visible. That image, it was not the God, but it represented and reflected what that God was like. We were created for that. Embodied for that. In other words, our bodies tell us the truth about who we were created to be. Can you see implications with me? Our bodies tell us the truth about who we were created to be. That's a very different message than what our culture believes, especially concerning sexuality and gender, which is precisely where Genesis 127 goes. Genesis 127 specifically ties being made male and female to our being made in the image of God. Our embodiment matters. We see that in creation. So that begs the question, why does our world currently believe something different? To answer that question, we need to look at embodiment through the lens of salvation. This is number two. Second, embodiment matters in salvation. Embodiment matters in salvation. Why, why is it that so many people think salvation is merely about saving souls? Like, I, I grew up thinking that the good news of the gospel was that one day I would get to escape this world of sin and death. I would get to escape this body of disease and death, and I would go to live with God as a disembodied spirit in some lofty spiritual realm called heaven, sitting on white clouds, halo, wings, playing harp music nobody likes, no offense to harpists. Not only is that not true, it honestly doesn't sound like good news. Where did we get this idea from? Historically, it comes from the field of philosophy, which has influenced the way that we as Westerners read our Bibles. You can go all the way back to Plato. Plato taught that the immortal soul was superior to the body. The soul was your true self. Skip down a couple of centuries, get to the first century in which some of the New Testament is written, and we start dealing with a philosophical movement called Gnosticism. The Gnostics taught that all matter, everything created, is bad, including your body. Your body's evil. And the goal of salvation is to escape your body and escape this material world altogether to a spiritual world. Fast forward a couple more hundred years, and we get eventually to the Enlightenment thinkers. The Enlightenment thinkers taught that rationality, the life of the mind, is superior. It's superior to our emotions. It's superior to our bodies. The rational mind is the only thing that can be trusted as the arbiter of truth. The arbiter of truth that can be trusted, the only one that can be trusted, is the internal, immaterial you. The history is a lot more complicated than this, but even from this brief sketch, I hope that you can see that all of these philosophical trends, they have influenced Western culture, including the church in the West, to the point that we all think of ourselves, our true selves, as separate from our bodies. And we think of that self, whatever it is, when I say I and me, we think of that as superior to the body instead of thinking of the self as embodied. 
That has caused us to pay attention only to what pieces of the Bible has to say about salvation. Namely, the Bible does say that when we die, our spirit does go to be with the Lord right now. 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. But we pretend like that's where the story ends, and it's not. Shades, shades, the good news of the gospel is so much grander, so much greater, so, and, and so much more glorious. The good news of the gospel is not that we are waiting for a day when we get to escape this place and we get to escape this body. No, the good news is that God will redeem this place and redeem our bodies. Romans 8.21 says all of creation is longing for the day when the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul says creation is groaning like, like a mom in labor, longing for that pain to give way to the celebration of new life. Creation, likewise, is longing for the second advent of Christ, when it suffering underneath the curse of sin and death will give way to a celebration of new life that the Bible calls new creation. Creation's not only longing for that, so are we. For our bodies are groaning. Do you feel that? Am I alone in that? I, um, so everybody knows because I've made a really big deal out of it that I turned 40 recently, and I'm like, I gotta get my life together kind of thing and grow up. And so I have joined a gym, um, not just a gym, I joined a CrossFit gym. Um, <laughs> And let me just say, I show up about a month ago on, yeah, this is me after a month. You can tell the difference, right? I show up. This is because I can only survive about two days a week right now. Patience. Anyway, I show up the first day at class, and the instructor, he looks at me and welcomes me and all that, and he looks at the board that's got the workout on it. It's leg day. It's squat day. I haven't squatted with free weights since high school. And he looks at the board, and he looks at me, and he goes, I'm sorry, man. This is not an exaggeration. This is not a preacher it, it, like, like making a story more entertaining. I could not walk up and down stairs unassisted for three days. I was on that stairwell, just, just hanging on and just climbing up. Why do I tell you all of that? I tell you all of that because creation is not the only thing groaning. We are groaning and longing for redemption. Just, just like the physical creation feels the effects of sin and death, so do we, including in our bodies. And we groan and we long along with creation to be free, not from our bodies, but for our bodies to be free from death and all of its effects. Romans 8.23, not only the creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of of our bodies. We long for Christ's second advent when he will bring to completion the redemption his first advent began, when we will literally be resurrected like him. His resurrection, that's the first fruits. He's the firstborn from the dead. He just opened the door that the rest of us get to walk through. 
his second coming, we will literally be resurrected. This is why all the creeds say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. We'll be resurrected like him, and we shall be with him always embodied in this world made new. You want to see what that looks like? The best I can do for you is point you to Genesis 1 and 2. Shades, this is the good news of Advent. The embodied word came to save his embodied world. Embodiment matters. It matters in creation. It matters in salvation. And third, final, embodiment matters in the incarnation. Embodiment matters in the incarnation. The word became flesh. The word, the one who reveals God, he took on flesh. What does that reveal about how he feels about flesh, his creation? I submit to you that not since Genesis 1, where he declared it is good, not since then has God given a greater affirmation of the goodness of his creation than he himself was willing to take on flesh. There are massive implications of this. I'll just give you two. My body is good, and what I do with it matters. First one, my body is good. When we think of our bodies as something that is not good, that it's actually a hindrance, it's in the way of my relationship with the Lord with all of its temptations and all of these different things, we will tend towards asceticism. Asceticism is where we literally try to punish the body. We see it as something bad that needs to be punished and overcome in order to gain spiritual benefit. Go and read Colossians chapter 3. Read ver- I mean Colossians chapter 2. Read verse 23 where Paul says that Man-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It's not that aesthetic practices like fasting have no place at all within the practice of our faith, but not to punish our body because it's something evil that must be overcome to get me close to Christ. My body is good. If it weren't, Christ himself would not have taken on flesh. Second implication I told you is what I do with my body matters. When when we tend to think that our body doesn't matter to our spirituality, our our spiritual relationship with the Lord, it's it's, it's all a, a spiritual thing, all meant for spiritual pursuit, then what we will do is we will tend towards hedonistic practices with our body. This is the opposite of asceticism. Asceticism is punishing the body. Hedonism is I'm just going to use my body as a a meat vehicle for pleasure. However I can find it. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price so glorify God in your body. Christ taking on flesh is an affirmation of the goodness of his creation. It means my body's good and my body matters. Creation's not evil, your body's not bad. Both are just in need of redemption. And this season, Advent, it celebrates the coming of the Redeemer. 
the embodied word who came to save his embodied world. I want us, I want us to spend the rest of this season pondering some of the practical implications of the incarnation. I want us to spend some time pondering practical implications of embodiment for us as a church. A church interestingly known as the body of Christ. I want us to ponder embodiment because we live in a disembodied age. A digital age disconnected from each other as if embodiment doesn't matter. But Christ came embodied that we might be embodied forever. That has to have implications for living embodied now. Especially since he has called us to be a part of his body, the church. He took on a body so that we might be part of his. The embodied word came to save his embodied world. I don't want us to miss out on the wonder of that. So, Shades, this Advent, will you take a journey with me? Take a journey to, to the, the manger side, to ponder the implications of the incarnation. The manger is not empty. God has not merely said that he loves us. He's put flesh on those words, flesh on the word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Will you, will you come with me? to the manger and behold the wonder of the embodied word. Now go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. Amen.